Hello, my name is Sandy Adamitis, the social media director for the Page International Screenwriting Awards, and your host for the Writer's Hangout, a podcast that celebrates the many stages of writing, from inspiration to the first draft, revising, getting a project made, and everything in between. We'll talk to the best and the brightest in the entertainment industry and create a space where you can hang out, learn from the pros, and have fun. Rolling. Hi, I'm Sandy Adamitis. Hi, I'm Terry Sampson. Terry. Yes. I have something to complain about. Oh, good. <laughs> I want to start <laughs> start things off on a high positive note. Super. <laughs> Two friends of mine. Yeah. Actually, you know, Kathy and Lisa. Yeah. We went out to breakfast on oh. Sunday. And restaurants are starting to really go crazy with outdoor seating in the wrong way in L.A. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, you would think L.A., because of the great weather, we would have had restaurants with great outdoor seating. That's not the case. Wrong. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the pandemic that restaurants started going, you know, we have a sidewalk out in front of our restaurant. Or a little part of the parking lot. Parking lot. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Let's use it. It's gone crazy. We went to this restaurant for breakfast, and it looked really crowded in front. The restaurant itself was really tiny. And they said, oh, we have a table for you. And I'm looking around, and I'm like, where? You know, and I'm so excited because this food looks delicious. They take us around the corner. By the back door, there was like this alley where I think they usually like wash out bins for dishes and stuff. Of course. And they just stuck two tables. It was dirty. And the one table we were going to get was right next to them washing dishes. Oh, man. And they were like, we'll be back with menus. (laughs) We won't be here. It's starting to get a little outrageous. Right. Where LA is just giving up parking lots and putting in tables. Yeah, I know that some of them have just blocked streets off. I actually think that's the answer. Yeah, I like a blocked street off in the downtown area. Yeah. I like that kind of thing. And you roll there and they put put that out, tables and chairs, make it work. Yeah. Otherwise, you just eat inside and... Roll the dice. Yeah, roll the dice with your life. That's all. Yeah, that's just your life. (laughs) You know, back alley eating or... (laughs) You know, I'm curious about... I've been diligent in keeping up on the COVID situation. And the talk on news and everything is now down to almost nothing. Correct. I don't even I don't think I heard anything this week on the news that I check into constantly to make sure. Right. Because this town, some of my friends that don't live in Los Angeles, I've had this conversation with them. A big city, especially like New York, is a really good example of this. But when things go bad, they go bad quick. I mean, it's it's a matter of days, and all of a sudden the numbers spike up a lot. And so you really have to be on top of your game. Yeah. All the you... survival books that I read. Yeah. It's a guilty pleasure of mine. <laughs> Apocalyptic uh, survival books. Yeah. Three days. Big cities have three days. Yeah. And then food runs out. Yeah. That's all you have. It's... That's in the grocery store. Is three days worth of food. Yeah, and everybody runs there. It was the we had the toilet paper experience of that when it first started. But I interrupted you. You were saying New York. Oh, I love back. to talk about toilet paper. Don't stop me. <laughs> Do not slow me down. Double ply. Love that. Soft. Sure. Did you hoard during the <laughs> pandemic? I hoarded. Be, be honest. I hoarded everything. Did I, you? Uh, I have. I have over 10,000 cotton swabs. I don't need that many. I got two ears. I did overdo it a little on the hand sanitizer. Did you? I have to admit that. I have like way too much hand sanitizer. 
Today, we are going to tell you about four writers and one very special project, the iconic Valley of the Dolls. Valley of the Dolls was released on December 15, 1967, and was based on Jacqueline Suzanne's 1966 bestseller, which promised to tear the lid off Hollywood and Broadway. The novel spanned 20 years from 1945 to 1965, and follows three women who become best friends when they are young and struggling in New York City. They climb to the top of the entertainment industry, only to find that there is no place left to go but down into the Valley of the Dolls. The Valley is not a place, but a state of mind, and dolls are the pills that wake them up in the morning and knock them out at night. Wait a minute. The dolls are pills. The dolls are pills. Valley of the Dolls. dolls. Yeah, it's about women and dolls. You would think it's Valley of these three women. That's what I would have guessed. But no, it's more salacious. The three women. We have, there's Naive New Englander. Now, this isn't the novel. There's the Naive New Englander, Anne Wells, played by Barbara Parkins, who leaves her engaged-to-be-engaged boyfriend to become a secretary at a theatrical law firm, where she falls in love with attorney Lion Burke, played by Paul Burke. That's a coincidence, don't you think? That's not a coincidence. (laughs) Do you think they gave Lion didn't have a uh, last name and they just gave it Burke is the same? I as think the it's actor. based on Lion Burke. Ah, that's that's what I'm going to go with. I don't but know anything Lion about Burke. this. <laughs> is that his name? Yes, oh, okay. L. It's spelled L Y O N. Okay, and uh, I mean, I kept thinking of a lion. They were calling him right. Lion, but Lion Burke. Then there's the up-and-coming singer, Neely O'Hara, played by Patty Duke, who becomes a Hollywood star, and Jennifer North, played by Sharon Tate, a beautiful but talentless actress. Sharon Tate, as we all know, was murdered by the Manson family, her her baby, up in the hills. And that's the whole helter-skelter. There you go. The women experience high highs and low lows in love, work, addiction, and tragedy. To the beginning. The novel Valley of the Dolls was written by Jacqueline Suzanne. I've always loved that name, Jacqueline Suzanne. Sounds like a made-up name for a, a, a romance novelist. Yeah, well, it's two first names. Two first names, Jacqueline Suzanne. She was born August 20th in 1918 in Wynwood, Pennsylvania. Jacqueline wanted to be an actress, and she had some success on the Maury Amsterdam show, who was Maury from the Dick Van Dyke show. Yes, I, yeah. I don't remember him having a show. Yeah, I guess probably a variety type show, maybe. Wow. Radio show. Oh, this is a radio show. Oh, well, that radio makes more, show. That yeah, makes that makes more sense. sense. So we didn't see the Maury Amsterdam. It was a radio show, and she did commercials. In 1962, after some encouragement from a friend, Jacqueline began to adapt into a book letters she had written about her beloved poodle Josephine. The book, Every Night Josephine, sold 1.7 million in paperback and 35,000 in hardcover. A million based on a dog. 
Ozana Dog on her poodle. Jacqueline went on a book tour with Josephine and her husband, press agent Irving Mansfield. Well, there you go. And there's well, some sales figures there's there. There's some sales figures there. Her husband, Irving, was very good at his job. And they are credited as, as a couple as creating the modern day book tour. They were very clever about how they did it. They took Josephine with them. Of course. And it was a big hit and kept selling books. Wow. Not everyone was a fan of Suzanne's writing. Gore Verdal said, she doesn't write, she types. <laughs> Ow. In July 1969, Truman Capote appeared on The Tonight Show and announced that Susan looked like a truck driver in drag. On Susan's next <laughs> visit to the show... I mean, really, how rude. Johnny Carson gave her a chance to respond to Capote by asking, what do you think of Truman? Susan quipped, I think history will prove he's one of the best presidents we've had. <laughs> Bravo, cute. Suzanne. Good, good comeback. It it's the old... I don't even know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And the best one is, is Mariah Carey. I don't know her from a Sparkle. Mm-mm. I don't know her. Jacqueline's next novel was Valley of the Dolls, and it received largely negative reviews and called simply a dirty book. But despite the poor reviews, the book was a huge success. And on May 8th, 1966, in its ninth week on the list, Valley of the Dolls reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And it remained there for 28 consecutive weeks and became the best-selling novel of 1966. And by 2016, the novel had sold more than 31 million copies. And with figures like that, Hollywood comes a knocking real fast. And your dog, Josephine, is depressed. <laughs> She's really, no longer the star no, of the family. No. It's, it's now sex, sex yeah. and drugs. Yeah. When selling the movie rights to Valley of the Dolls, you could tell that Jacqueline and her husband Irving were New Yorkers because Jacqueline waived both the rights to pen the screenplay and to assert any creative control over the movie. You just want to go back and say... Don't do that. Exactly. Why? There's no in information on... Was everybody doing that then? Well, Jacqueline said she wanted to concentrate on her next book. Which was her cat, I understand. Which, which no, was all true. about this cat she had <laughs> with a grumpy face. Oh, way ahead of her time. Yeah, she was way, <laughs> way ahead of her Jacqueline also missed out on adding in a clause that would pay her more the longer her book was on the bestseller list. Yikes. Wow. So she didn't wow. get a, a lot of, she had no Leland Hayward yes. advising her on this contract. Jackie said, the book was mine. No one told me how to write it, what to say. The pictures was Fox. They certainly weren't paying me a huge sum of money so they could destroy my book. <laughs> 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 well, Jacqueline... She'd kind of 
eat those words kind of a year later. Yes. Off, she said. Yeah. Off the podcast, you and I last week touched on the idea that so often a really good idea is corrupted by agents or producers. Right. And the story, well, we need to change this and changing that, whatever that is, mm-hmm. will ultimately ruin the initial idea. Right. So she didn't know that then. Nope. Maybe your she, dog did. We don't know. She gave it away. Yeah. Valley of the Dolls landed at Fox, and a 31-year-old screenwriter named Harlan Ellison, nicknamed Mad Dog, was paid $11,000, and that's about $88,000 today, to write a treatment. It was supposed to be a step contract. He was never asked to go past the treatment, but he did receive the $11,000. Background on Ellis. Ellis moved to Hollywood in 1962 from Cleveland, Ohio, to become a writer, and he got gigs writing episodes of TV, including Route 66, Burke's Law, and the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Mm. Harlan was hired because he was young, talented, and edgy. The edginess was he had written a yet unseen adaption of the 1964 novel, The Oscar. And it kind of worked out for Harlan that it's that old thing in Hollywood, get a job, or I guess anywhere, get a job when you have a job. So good word was being said about the Oscar. And even though Fox didn't see the movie yet, they gave him the job to write Valley of the Dolls. Harlan went to work out of an office in the Swiss chalet-style writer's building at 20th, and he turned in a 124-page treatment of Valley of the Dolls on May 6, 1966. He envisioned a credit sequence of female hands grabbing a pill bottle, eyes brimming with pain, then the distorted Manhattan skyline kind of collapsed into itself and melted. It was all a little much for the studio, a little too... Psychedelic? Too too psychedelic. At that point, the novel Valley of the Dolls was in its 12th printing, and the studio felt pressure to get the movie made, and they didn't want Harlan's hip and young treatment, and they went looking for a solid and dependable writer who could get them in front of the camera. So Obviously, no, Harlan was just too hip. Harlan, yeah. come on, the yeah, name. right there. Right there, they should have known. Yeah. Next up, Helen Deutsch. At 61, she never learned to type and spoke her screenplays into a dictaphone machine. Born in New York City, she graduated from Barnard College and wrote theater reviews for the New York Times. In 1942, she adapted the novel National Velvet into a screenplay that became the famous film starring Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, that was her big deal. Don't remember the movie, but I remembered how gorgeous Elizabeth Taylor was. And she was like uh, 18 or 19 or 20, something like that. I think she was probably in her teens. Yeah. And Mickey Rooney. I think Mickey Rooney, probably the stable boy, was in that too. Well, he's beautiful too. He is. Helen wrote screenplays for, for 1950's King Solomon's Mine, 1955's The Glass Slipper, and 1964 The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Helen spoke seven languages and regularly read works in Middle Latin. 
Oh my god! <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I guess. Wow, she climbing just on did that, that for fun. Climbing on that dead language yes. thing. She refused to work full days on Tuesdays because she had a standing appointment with her Beverly Hills hairdresser. I remember back in the day, women were known for having standing appointments. My mom did. She went sure. to the hairdresser yeah. every Friday afternoon. Did your mom have a regular appointment? Yeah, I think she did. I wasn't really keyed in on what that was, but I knew that there was a different energy Oh. On that day in which, you know. That, energy before she left, like she was getting out of the house or energy when she came back. Energy starting that day. That was that was an, a thing where she had she could walk away from the chaos I was creating at the house <laughs> and get an hour of bliss. Yeah. And there was somebody else, you know, concerned about making her look great. And that's kind of and nice. comfortable and happy. Yeah. Yeah. And they had those big dryer dryers. Covers. Yeah. And you could just put it over your head. Yeah. And just melt away in the heat. Yeah. It's like going All to the, moon. the days. Yeah. Yeah. You got this big helmet on. You don't really you got the moon. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's space travel. <laughs> and she was known for frequent outings at swanky nightclubs escorted by dashing men. On her studio office wall hung two framed mottos. The first one, the mind too must lie fallow a while. That was meant to warn off any executives who might take offense to her daily catnips on the couch in her office and, when in doubt, cut to the chase. Two great mottos. Yeah, that first one, I'm telling you, if you want to change the culture in the United States, it would be to include napping. (laughs) Yes. Everybody would be happier. So much happier. Friends of Jacqueline thought that she was threatened by Helen, but Jacqueline just said that she thought Helen was a snob, which I I hope isn't true, because I really would like to think that maybe these two women went out for drinks and talked about the book and had a great time, but... Yeah, let's say they did. Let's say they did. When veteran Los Angeles Times reporter asked for Jacqueline's reaction to Helen Deutsch being hired, Jacqueline said... Helen told me, I want to follow your story completely. I spent a year and a half struggling with the book's dialogue and another half year promoting the book. I don't want to sweat over the screenplay. I'd rather use the time for writing my next book. So she is completely on her own. The rest is up to her. Tone is important in that sentence, don't you think? I wish I knew what the tone was. The rest is up to her. Yeah. As in, the rest is up to that genius or, or good luck, yeah. Sally. This is your problem, <laughs> This not is mine. your problem, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can't quite figure out what that tone was. Yeah, we'd have to, we'd have to see her say it. Helen submitted her first draft screenplay in October of 1966 and filed slight revisions on November 3rd, and it weighed in at 186 pages. That's a lot of pages. That's a lot of pages. Her approach differs from Harlan's treatment. Her tone is much more serious, and she front-loaded her versions with themes, the major one being the one who endures wins. The character, Lion, says to Anne, you win if you can take it, if you can last. 
For success in show business, a major requirement is the ability to survive. There's no business quite like show business because the people deal not in commodities or services, but in their own souls, in their own lives, in their own bodies. Yeah, I can see the serious tone in there. Yeah. Although it was generally agreed that the script needed work, the movie makers became frustrated with Helen when she refused to make major changes with which she did not agree. They didn't like the theme of the one who endures wins. Calling her valley stint a sour note on which to cap her career, Helen retired to a high rise at 185 Park Avenue. That would be the last screenplay she would ever write was Valley of the Dolls. Well, now that you've said that, it sort of makes sense. If I'm not mistaken, in, in today's production schedule, if a guy or gal is not going to make the changes, they'll find somebody who will. Which is exactly what they did. They moved on to the third writer. Fox was getting impatient with the non-progress and brought in Dorothy Kingsley, best known for her work on scripts for Girl Crazy, Kiss Me Kate, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Born in New York City, Dorothy was the daughter of a newspaper man and press agent, Walter J. Kingsley, and silent film actress, Elma Hallen. So she really had that entertainment background mm-hmm. that she could rely on for her her take on the script. Dorothy started by writing on speculation for radio era's biggest stars, including Jack Benny and Eddie Cantor, then spent several years as a gag writer for ventriloquist Edgar Bergen's popular radio show. Wow. Dorothy was told to retain the excitement of the novel, but cut out the offensive parts which we have to think that the exciting parts were the offensive parts. Uh, So there's trouble right there. Clean it up, but keep it strong. (laughs) Incorporate more of the novel's key scenes and much of its original dialogue as possible. For three months, Dorothy worked in her office at 20th, rewriting in longhand. If you were told to adapt a screenplay, but keep most of the dialogue in the book, would that make you happy or would that kind of frustrate you? Would you want to come up with your own dialogue? I would be moving on to another project. (laughs) I think you can sort of absorb a a dialogue style, Mm -hmm. but the rhythm of of the conversation, that's the music part. Yes. And a novel and a screenplay, the pacing is very different. Yeah. Dorothy Reed turned in her 130-page draft on January 6, 1967. Dorothy's script with elements and dialogue from Helen Deutsch's version and Harlan Ellison's treatment got greenlit by 20th. Sales of Jacqueline's novel were still booming, and the public demand for a movie version was peaking, so there wasn't any more time or money to keep hiring screenwriters, hoping that one of them could fix what may have been unfixable. <laughs> they felt that at that time? Yep. They and just, they just said, well, it's time to, it's time to make the movie. We got we to <laughs> just greenlight it. Let's get going. How does that happen now? Does that regularly happen? I think it's just one of those things that Windows, yeah, I Star's Time is available. Oh. They got that window of time, yeah. the the rewrite. They only budgeted for $300,000 in rewrites, and they already spent it. Yeah, sometimes all those things just domino. 
and a picture can get greenlit. At Fox, some felt Dorothy Kingsley should receive sole credit, and Kingsley agreed. Helen Joyce was indifferent. The screenplay credit went into arbitration, and the Writers Guild ruled that Helen Deutsch and Dorothy Kingsley would share credit. I think also in that order. I think Helen's name came first. The critics were not kind. Roger Ebert called it a dirty soap opera. The New York Times wrote, All a fairly respectful admirer of movies can do is laugh at it and turn away. (laughs) Again, ouch. (laughs) I watched Valley of the Dolls last night, and for me, it was one of those So Bad It's Good movies, which we discussed earlier. You do not like So Bad It's Good movies. I don't. I do adore a So Bad It's Good movie. I, for some reason, I can't climb on and laugh at it. No. I feel like I always watch stuff just, on TV now. I don't go to theaters, but I'd want my money back somehow. And the TV will not give me the money back. No. <laughs> I look at it, I go, come on. You can fix this. <laughs> you are not a mystery science theater fan either. No, I love commenting. Oh, oh, God. <laughs> oh, are you kidding? That's the best. I would, I would take that job in a second and... Uh, What's this jackass doing? (laughs) would be my common phrase. The Guinness Book of World Records declared the book the most popular novel in the world. I say, watch it as I did. It's very campy and it won't disappoint you, no matter what. Great. You'll get something out of this movie. All right, I'm in. I'll complain next week. My resources for this story are the book Dolls, Dolls, Dolls by Stephen Ribello, Wikipedia, IMDB, and a Vanity Fair article by Donald Liebson. So do you think you'll check out Valley of the Dolls? No, I won't. I'm waiting for Steven Spielberg to do his version with a beautiful score by John Williams. It'll be fantastic. I I can't believe you said that, and I, I, I left this out. Roberta Flack sings the theme song oh. for Valley of the Dolls, and it's, it is good. I did enjoy it. There's some Roberta Flack throughout this. There's musical numbers in this, because they are Broadway people going to Hollywood. So does that change your mind? Yes, I'm all in. <laughs> That's a wrap for the Writer's Hangout. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, like, and thrive. Till we get to hang out again, keep writing. The world needs your stories. The Writer's Hangout is sponsored by the Page International Screenwriting Awards. Executive producer, Kristen O'Verne. Producers, Terry Sampson and Sandy Adamitis. Music by Ethan Stoller.